but I don't I really don't have any regrets I really don't I've I've lived exactly how I've wanted to I've tried my hardest every single time I didn't win the matches that maybe I should have always won or but I really gave it my all so that for me is enough Hello everybody, welcome back to the Body Serve. I'm Jonathan. And I'm James. The French Open is over. That was one of the longest two weeks of my life. Tennis-wise. <laughs> yeah. I don't mean to start out as a buzzkill, but it really uh, was a struggle to get through it, if I'm being totally honest. I feel like every episode starts out with a buzzkill. I feel like yeah. we are increasingly negative and miserable, <laughs> sour, dour just wretched people on this podcast wow that's that's what happens when you're stuck in the house with the same person for over a year so now it's my fault no uh, <laughs> we both have been stuck with the same person uh vince right <laughs> two champions um i uh <laughs> surprising and not surprising both of them yeah we talked on the last episode that a few of the women's quarterfinalists, although not your usual suspects, were not entirely surprising given their results this year. Uh, I want to back off that a little bit because Barbara Krejcikova as the champion is entirely surprising. Even if she had some cute results through the clay season and earlier this year, it's still pretty out of the left field. Yes and no. I mean, we've also said that the folks who play well play well for stretches since the resumption mm -hmm. you know people aren't really having one cute result and then going away right but of all the wta shock slam winners over the past five years to me this would be the most surprising well because of how far she's come i guess Gen yeah. jennifer brady's rise to australian open finalist in january it built over a longer period of time mm-hmm I mean, Krejcikova was questioning her position as a singles player, not too in the distant past. This was only her fifth Grand Slam main draw in singles. She was already a five-time Slam winner. Two in women's doubles, three in mixed doubles. She brings a ton of experience, but not in singles. You watch her play and you get why she's having success. Mm -hmm. Her backhand is... So good. So much fluidity off the backhand wing. She has variety. On clay, she's able to deploy the moon ball better than damn near anybody. Right. She has a lot of variety, but her variety looks different from, say, Ash Barty or Schiavone or any of, you know, the typical WTA players in recent memory who have variety, quote unquote. Meaning? Meaning... She uh, plays clay court tennis in a way that you wouldn't automatically say, wow, this is this is swashbuckling. This is really attractive tennis. It's deadly effective tennis. Like you said, she uses the moon ball a lot and exposes just how effective it is, especially on the surface. This was the drop shot open on yes. both men's and women's sides. I am so tired of drop shots, successful and unsuccessful ones. You know I live for playing the drop shot myself. Yes. So if I am tired of the drop shot, then... <laughs> this final, Krejcikova beat Anastasia Pavlyuchenkova in three sets, 6-4 in the third. There was a, I would say, an outpouring of support for Pavlyuchenkova as she went through this, this run. I think a lot of folks understood the pedigree that she brought to tennis at the start of her career as a junior prodigy, and they've seen her kind of struggle over the years to a point where now she's she's created a pretty solid career and that this would have been a nice icing on the cake for her career. Yeah, she was definitely a sentimental favorite. Wow, that's a much more succinct way of describing what I just droned on about <laughs> for like two minutes. She's very likable. She can do her interviews in Russian, French, or English. You are very into her speaking French. I feel like you you sent out like six tweets about no, it her. It was just one. <laughs> uh, it, 
<laughs> it was a flex, though, because uh, she made it look rather easy. I also love how Americans, and you are clearly on the better spectrum of this, Americans are so impressed by people who speak multiple languages and oh, speak them well. I will always be impressed by that. It's much more common uh, outside of the United States, as you know. But if you speak two or more languages, good on you. Krejcikova got off to a fast start, pretty much running away with that first set. But then Pavlichenko was able to bring it back in the second. There were two lopsided sets. Yeah. And uh, just when you thought that maybe Pavlichenkova was resting control of the match, she seems to suffer an injury. And that clearly hampered her the rest of the way. A strange thing happened at the end of this match, whereby on match point, a ball that was very close looked like it to the naked eye that it could have been in or out. Yeah, yeah. And... Uh, the chair umpire, Kater Nuni, as well as Pavlyuchenkova, neither of them bothered with the mark. Yeah, on the replay, it looked like, uh, you know, from the angle, it was impossible to tell. But it looked like it could have hit the line. I have no idea. Uh, but the fact that the umpire wasn't out of the chair checking that mark on match point was... Championship point. Right. Very bizarre and seemed like a real miss. Especially because this tournament and Krejcikova in particular had had a few of these weird calls, one of which she was disadvantaged by. This one, you know, not not to say that there was anything amiss on this one. It's just that the umpire on such a momentous ball should have been out of the chair right away. You already have a situation where calls are in question all the time on clay. <laughs> because... The electronic replay system is unreliable on clay. There is a lot of relying on folks checking balls after the fact, wondering, well, did they check the right ball? There's never going to be 100% certainty in these kinds of situations. Right. Players circle a mark with their racket. Sometimes umpires disagree with the mark that they circled. This happened to Krejcikova in the semifinal against Sakari, where she circled the mark and it seemed that the umpire was like, uh-uh, and overruled her. And, that, you know, she actually could have won the match on that point. Well, I mean, this is... The last few days have not been kind to Krejcikova in terms of how a lot of folks view her <laughs> because of these line-calling situations. Yes. There was an instance in the doubles match, because, spoiler... She won the doubles as well. There was an incident in the doubles match where a ball looked to be well inside the baseline. And, uh, mm. yeah. So not to cast aspersions or anything, but I, as a player, I would just not like to be in the position where people are tempted to label me. Um, I don't want to say the CH word, but in a way that's not Charismatic? <laughs> I guess I'm just saying, try not to get yourself in those situations. One thing that I, and I know that you agree, is that the criticism over the bathroom breaks is a slippery slope. Like, it's really difficult to criticize these things because a lot of players do it. A lot of favorite players, a lot of otherwise, quote unquote, good mm -hmm. sports take these uh, interestingly timed bathroom breaks. And it's really tricky to question why someone excuses themselves off the court. And to my mind, we see a lot of this uproar more in the women's game than we do in the men's game. And part of me thinks some of that is there's like a consensus, something that's taken for granted that the men deserve to have this break because they're exerting themselves more. <laughs> and that there, there must be some kind of trickery with the women when they do it. Hannah Wilkes at New Balls Please on Twitter, she tweeted something about this in the height of the, the furor surrounding it on Sunday, saying, quote, It's been said before, but I really think anyone complaining about bathroom breaks needs to prove they can change out of a sweaty sports bra into a new one and replace a tampon in under 90 seconds before they're allowed to have an opinion. It, and I really right. don't feel like I'm allowed to have an opinion on this. So <laughs> That's exactly it. Like... Are there 
instances where players are employing gamesmanship with these breaks? Absolutely. Is it possible for us watching from home to assess which one of these is gamesmanship and which is legit? No. Are those instances where gamesmanship potentially happens also within the rules? Yes. The rules allow it. A lot of gamesmanship is perfectly legal. Mm -hmm. It doesn't mean that it's nice, but it's allowed. Right. And I mean, the nature of fandom, we allow our faves or the people that we like more to get away with more. So like, Mm -hmm. it's it's just too much, really. (laughs) So... Let's not dwell on that. The uplifting part of Krejcikova winning is all the stories that we heard about her mentor-protege relationship with Yana Novotna. Yeah. Mary Carrillo told this story on the broadcast that Krejcikova and her family literally went to Yana Novotna's house, like unannounced, to introduce themselves and just ask for some advice for a young player turning pro. And that little encounter turned into a mentorship and eventually Yana being Barbara's coach. And so she spoke a lot about Yana and what she kind of owed to her throughout this tournament. And that was great just to remind everybody how wonderful Yana Novotna was for the sport. If you don't know... Yana Novotna was one of my favorite players of all time. Died a couple years ago after having battled breast cancer at the age of only 49 years old. A real loss to the sport. And obviously a loss that Krejcikova felt probably more intensely than most people in tennis because of their relationship. You know, since Yana's death, Barbara has won a bunch of slam titles. (laughs) She won the... As I said, a few in women's doubles, a few in mixed. And now she's won her sixth and seventh slam title at this tournament. And I think that that experience, even though she wasn't on these big stages in singles, that like late stage experience probably helped her quite a bit in this final. Because, you know, it's hard to know how either player is going to approach this match. People expect Pavs to be nervous or to make silly mistakes because she has sort of stumbled at that quarterfinal stage many times before. Six times before. But I don't think, I really don't think that happened here. I was impressed by her composure, by her willingness to just really dig in and fight. Even when she was injured in this final, she really wanted it. Mm -hmm. And her perspective afterward was so heartening. Again, it's, it's a matter of how we look at these things. In the past... I feel like when somebody says, you know, I'm just so happy to be here, people may have taken it as, well, wow, you don't have the mentality. But for somebody like Pavlyuchenkova, who has been through so much, to be able to say, wow, I'm just enjoying it, taking it all in, I'm so happy, even though I lost, that's a heartwarming story. And I I think we are kind of moving out of that tired sport trope of... If I don't win, then I don't need that runner-up trophy. Like Serena in her closet, you know? (laughs) Uh Not everybody's a Serena Williams. Right, right. And Pavlyuchenkova is not even 30 years old yet. No. Right? Like, she has been out here for what seems like forever. But if she keeps playing like this, she does actually have a lot more chances. You mentioned Krejcikova's seventh slam title, which was in women's doubles. She showed up that day and she said absolutely not to Bethany Maddox Sands's mullet. Yeah. Yeah. Iga Sviantek and Bethany Mullet Sands teamed up in women's <laughs> doubles. The team made the final and fell 6 4 6 2 to Siniakova and Krichikova. Like, folks like to pretend that Bethany has a fashion aesthetic. That is not what I would call it. She definitely has her own vision. Mm hmm. This is Siniakova and Krejcikova's third slam title together. They were also the runners-up in the Australian Open this year. So Krejcikova goes up to number one in doubles again, which she also had in 2018. She goes up to number 15, I believe, in singles. And her partner, Siniakova, is a very close number two in the doubles rankings. 
Last episode, we had just gotten to the quarterfinals. They hadn't been played yet. At the quarterfinal round, Krejcikova beat Coco Goff in straight sets. Sakari with one of the wins of the tournament, maybe the upset of the tournament, beating the prohibitive favorite, the runaway favorite at that stage, Iga Sviantek, in straight sets. That was a hell of a win for Sakari. Yeah, with the tournament full of upsets, I feel like that is probably the biggest because I felt like Sviantek was the odds-on favorite from the beginning. Pavlyuchenkova beat Badosa and Zidanecek beat Rybakina. Then at the semifinal stage, just a monster mammoth hell of a semifinal between Krejcikova and Sakari, where Krejcikova won the first set. She went down in the first set early, came back to win it, I believe, 7-5. And then Sakari had lead upon lead upon lead toward what would have been her finish line in this match and wasn't able to close. Yeah. So we were out there for three hours and 18 minutes. There's no tiebreaker in the French Open in the third set, unlike some of the other Grand Slams. Well, all of the other Grand (laughs) Slams. Uh, And... You know, watching it, I was trying to keep track of all of the match points that Sakari saved because I was thinking, if she wins this match, I'm really going to want to walk through what she did on all of those points. And there were some real heroics. The first one was saved on a Krejcikova error, but the next one was just a series of these pounding backhands. And then one backhand winner that was just a little bit more sharply angled than Krejcikova's. You know, it was like the Andre Agassi thing. The third match point, she saved with an ace, and so on. She was certainly no shrinking violet at the late stages of that match. And the only thing that really decided it was, I mean, both players' fortitude. Krejcikova saved a match point as well, and Krejcikova was able to put away a Sakari drop shot that just sat up a bit too high. Mm-hmm. At the end of this match, we saw the same tired brain-dead conversations about Hawkeye (laughs) that we thought had been debunked, that we thought the folks who talk about tennis would be more precise in their language, would know what's up by now, to not be misleading the public at large. But that's not what happened. No, I think it's become clear now that they do know. Like, they do know that Hawkeye has not been uh, approved for use on clay that there are other technologies that are more accurate on clay. It's just easier to use the word Hawkeye. Mm, That's charitable. I don't think it's charitable at all. I think I've just called them lazy. I think there's at least one who just has, it has not seeped in (laughs) at all. (laughs) In order to be a good commentator, you need to be a a really good listener Mm -hmm. as well. Rather than just, like, shouting into the void on every medium possible. Um, But anyway, so what we saw happen was folks saying, we need Hawkeye. This is ridiculous. Hawkeye has to happen. We we cannot have this happening. And it's like, well, Hawkeye is not the answer. If there is an answer, it's Fox 10. That's not ready yet. Mm. Like, you can't be using Hawkeye as a one-size-fits-all terminology for electronic line replay right but uh, it's just extremely lazy by the networks because they show you footage of hawkeye and for people who are not like religious tennis fans they're like oh my god you know that call was wrong because they just showed me the hawkeye that said it was wrong Mm -hmm. so how, how are those fans supposed to know yeah right they don't know about these fractions of a percent of margin for error and all these things so what we got on the women's side was a first-time slam champ at Roland Garros for the sixth year in a row. We've had an extended, a full clay season where all these women played so many matches on clay. The, the women that you saw going deep at the French Open, the majority of them played a lot of tennis on the clay. Now we have a two-week swing before you get into playing Wimbledon. It'll be interesting to see how... The women who played well on clay, who, if any, can also play well on grass this season. Yeah. Because we did not have a grass season last year. So it's been two years since anybody's played competitively on grass. 
Yeah, this is a it's a huge disadvantage to young players who maybe haven't played on grass that much, at least at a high level. And I think Pam Schreiber tweeted about that. Oh yeah, as well. Yeah, are, are you lifting thoughts from Pam? I don't th- subconsciously. I mean, a great sort, if I am, you know, <laughs> but I don't think so. But uh, also just the two-week break is such a disadvantage for people who played late mm-hmm. into this tournament and also players who just kind of need a little time to readjust to a different surface. Whose it games... seems like you're talking about one rough and a doll. Uh, no. <laughs> I, well, if I mentioned young players first okay. because if you're 20 years old or whatever, you may not have played grass since 2019 and who knows if you played in the main draw of one of the big tournaments i'm just saying not having many tournaments on grass is a huge disadvantage for uh, you know a tournament that's considered to be the most prestigious in tennis Mm -hmm. learning to move on grass is something that can take a long time because you have so few opportunities to play on grass to begin with we saw today david gofa go down with an injury Mm. So many people slipping and falling already on the grass. On the men's side. You may have heard that Novak Djokovic won his second French Open title and his 19th Grand Slam singles title. He's now won all the slams and all the Masters 1000 tournaments, as well as the year-end championships, a minimum of two times. Nobody on the men's side has done that. He did it by beating Stefanos Tsitsipas in the final, who was playing his very first Grand Slam final. He also did it by beating Rafa Nadal for the second time in his career at the French Open in the semifinals. How do you want to lead into this? I think we should start with the semifinal because some will argue like not only it's the match of the tournament, but it's one of the greatest matches ever played in the history of clay court tennis, (laughs) created on the moon, next to Neptune, a stone's throw from Mars. What? Uh, yeah hyperbole it was a really good match like let's start there it had stretches of just stratospheric play it also had stretches of not very good stuff there there literally was a five nothing start to this match (laughs) yes uh i see i think we go far in the other direction because we're so contrarian when people say mid-match that this is like the greatest clay court match they've ever seen. Like mid, and com- mid, mid third set, people were tweeting this. Right. So like, what if one of the players retires right now? Is it still the best clay court match you've ever seen? We had <laughs> a shit first set. Well, to be fair, it was not a shit. It was first interesting. Set. It was very interesting, mm-hmm. but it wasn't good. We had a second <laughs> set where there was a resting of momentum. It was no, nowhere near both players playing their best. It was Novak resting momentum from Rafa, building off of that first set where he came back from five love down to almost get back on serve. Where this match really took off was in the third set. It yeah. built on yeah. the the intrigue, the the context. that This match had a lot of context going into it. It was the fact that nobody had beaten Rafa twice at the French Open. It was the fact that Rafa seems to have up until this point, completely rested momentum from Djokovic on clay. Like, he was the better player on clay. Yeah, yeah. And there was the context of Nadal winning two more matches, and he is the all-time slam leader on the ATP Tour with 21. And if Novak beats Rafa and goes on to win, he then has 19, and then it becomes somewhat of an inevitability that he will achieve that record to himself quicker than we may have imagined. Right, right. And so they get into this third set, and Djokovic, for the most, most part of it, is ahead. He's up 5-3. It doesn't become a war of attrition, like a true gladiator-like battle, until Rafa breaks back, and eventually they're in this third set tiebreak. That goes for 90-something minutes, this set. Yeah, for me, the match had a lot of very slight changes in momentum. And there were some stretches of just awe-inspiring points. And then there were times when it was clear, okay, Rafa's not really playing at his best right now. And so he is managing to find a way to stay in this. 
but if he loses this third set, it's done. It was pretty clear. Like he called the trainer. The third, the fourth set was a big nothing, right? That it started out with a break, two love lead. Yeah, and, and then, then it was six on, six in a row right. for Djokovic. So there's this temptation to conflate long, grueling matches with greatness. And I don't think that that's the case. This is not an argument for best of three as opposed to best of five. This is about just trying to be a little bit clear-eyed when looking at this. The match was great only for the third set and the stakes. Yeah, and I think actually the match was in keeping with Rafa's clay season thus far. Yeah. He hit way more errors than he normally does. Double faults. At certain points, his serve was very strong. And then other times it disappeared when he needed it. For small stretches, yeah. the serve was very strong. Right. <laughs> there were, it was patchy. Yeah. Like everything about it was patchy. And Novak is just, despite not being the best clay court player of his generation, pains me to say this, but he's the best fighter. He's the He knows how to make it through these matches better than anyone else. And the final showed that more than anything. Um... I'm gonna. Not on I'm clay. gonna. I'm gonna reject. Generally that. not on clay. I'm gonna reject. But pretty that. much everywhere else, it's it's subjective. Let's leave hmm. it at that. <laughs> I mean, I I said it pained me to say that I was serious. Okay. Because I as mean, if you, you know, want to throw the Djokovic fans a bone, you can't give them any other bone. You don't have to give them that bone. They're not listening. <laughs> the part that was really interesting to me in this match, and it sucked as a Nadal fan, was at five love when I saw Djokovic hang on to avoid suffering his third bagel opening set against Nadal on clay in their last four clay matches. When that didn't happen, when it wasn't a repeat of the final last year where he got bageled in the first set, you could immediately see that it was a completely different player mentally on court. And this is where Nadal struggled in this tournament for me. He had moments where a dip in play or a lapse, even just for a couple games, let players into matches where it's not something that we normally see. It happened against Schwartzman in the quarterfinals. And when that happened in the first set against Djokovic, he eventually closed it out 6-3, but the writing was on the wall for me. At that point, it was a completely different match. He was playing a completely different Djokovic. And for me, I think Djokovic realized in that moment in the first set, being down five love and credit to him, this was not the same match or the same opponent as the 2020 French Open final. Oh my God. It was not the same conditions. He would not be facing the same challenge. This was in effect a night match. Thank you to Stefano Stitsipas for losing a two set to love lead against that person (laughs) in the semifinals and stretching it out over five sets so that this match came on at nighttime. And so the court conditions played totally different from last year. So when folks are out here making a blanket comparison to what Novak was able to do this year compared to what he was unable to do last year in the finals, the conditions were different. And to my mind, the player he was playing was different as well. Whether that, that's a function of, of age, of Nadal not being able to go as deep into matches with that intensity and level as he has in the past? I don't know. I mean, we saw that in Australia against Tsitsipas. Mm. Yeah, see, I think that Rafa did not... He knew that he did not have the physical endurance in this match, and I think Novak sensed it as well. I think if Djokovic probably realized if he could stay in it and keep it to, you know, one set all, then he could probably pull out this match. You know, when his eyes bug out and he gets in super competitive mode and sucks in a lot of air, like, you know you're in trouble. (laughs) All that being said, this is not to diminish what Djokovic did because it was incredible. No two ways about it. I'm just not here for an un-nuanced discussion of what happened. The, 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 The runaway headlines that Djokovic conquers, vanquishes Nadal on clay... Like, did you watch the match? I also think a lot of people in tennis and possibly some commentators forget that Djokovic has beaten Nadal at Roland Garros before. 
He's they beaten, were, yeah, he's also beaten him <laughs> yes. multiple times on clay elsewhere. No, but well. it has happened at this literal tournament because a lot of people were talking about, oh, he's never conquered this. I'm like, well, indeed he has. The last time he beat Rafa at Roland Garros, he did not win the title. And that's almost what it looked like was happening in the final. Yeah, yes to that, but also we know that when he beat him in 2015, that was not... No, Rafa, that was, was, not he Rafa was not Rafa. good, but it was. it still happened. Yes. I'm also, you should just know this about me. I am allergic to enthusiasm if I'm not feeling it. <laughs> Do you, I am very contrarian in that way. So like, you know, when you're in a crowd and they're like, how are y'all doing? And you're supposed to be like screaming everything. I absolutely refuse to do that because I, I simply cannot fake it. You are a lot of fun. <laughs> <laughs> That's just me. What does that have to do with what we're talking oh, about? Oh, I'm just saying. So when everybody, like when all the commentators are pumping up a match and saying this is the greatest thing ever, I instinctively want to say the opposite. Mm-hmm. Even if it's not true. <laughs> but I mean, I remember that five hour, 50 minute final happened with Nadal and Djokovic at the Australian Open. I remember that Wimbledon 2008 happened. But I don't remember what it feels like to have watched it. So how am mm. I going to compare that to what is happening mid-third set of this match? Like, it just, make it make sense. It just doesn't, you know? <laughs> like, people get way too carried away with trying to to make something, to, to take several leaps in the moment to try and drum up hype for this broadcast. Yes. Co- commentators would do well to, rather than tell us, this is amazing... Tell us why this is so great. You don't you don't have to tell us that we have to savor this moment because this is historical. Just give us context. Explain to us what's happening. Okay, but like, you know, for example, you don't have to say this is the greatest clay court match ever. You could do like Mary Carrillo did, and she said this is my favorite match that these two have played, and this is why. And show us why. That's useful, right? <laughs> show don't tell. Now the other semifinal. Wow. Smash hit. Tsitsipas Verev. A what stone the hell? groove <laughs> smash hit wonder. As you know, we don't talk about that other gentleman on the show. Stefanos led two sets to love. Then he didn't. And then he won in five. Mm-hmm. The quarters that happened, Nadal beat Schwartzman. Pesky, nuisance-like resistance from Schwartzman as he does when he plays Nadal how he's able to generate that much pace from that frame (laughs) will continue to be a world wonder Djokovic beat Berrettini we won't get into it but it 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 drew out one of his famous uh, reactions Mm -hmm. the most of the quarters were kind of flop Zverev beating Davidovich Fokina that was terrible. Davidovich said that he was injured after mm. the match, and that makes sense. Having watched that match, that makes perfect sense. Tsitsipas Medvedev, uh, the French Open wasted another one of their plum night match slots on a really terrible match. I mean, they're the number two and number four in the world. I know. I was really looking forward to it, and it... Uh, it was not good. It was not good. We... Uh, kind of skip past the final. No, no, I, we were like setting the tone for getting oh, to the okay. final because so much of this tournament hinged on that semifinal between Nadal and Djokovic. Mm-hmm. The final started with an extremely tight first set. Novak at the beginning of the set was barely even losing points on serve, first or second serve. And as it went on, you know, Steph is is sticking in it. He's playing, he's hitting the forehand at a very high level, and you got the feeling he's going to have to stay at this extremely high level if he's mm. going to win a set. But then he gets broken at 5-all. Mm. Djokovic serves for it and immediately goes on love for it. Right. So this I did not see coming. I also did not see it coming that Stefanos would go up, what? 4-love. 4 4 4-love in the tiebreak. Tie and then pull it out. After losing that lead and Djokovic <laughs> himself having a set point... In that tiebreak. Mm-hmm. And then after that, Stefanos kind of runs away with the second set. Right. So 6-2. It's something we have all seen before. If you've ever seen a long Djokovic match, you've seen that moment where, oh my God, he's so tired. 
He's so mentally out of oh it. Oh my god! It is gonna. He, how will he go on? He's in Xbox mode. <laughs> no, the opposite. Like, no, I'm saying he becomes like then the moment happens where you realize this is now Xbox right? mode. But like, what are, is the commentary team thinking in the second set when they're saying, "Oh my, oh my God, Djokovic, this is horrible." Like, you know, he's so tired. He's not gonna make it. This is going to be over soon. Like, have you ever watched this guy play before? It wasn't unreasonable. He played four hours and 11 minutes against Nadal, which was, okay. I imagine, incredibly taxing and mentally and physically. a day off in between. Had a day and a half. Djokovic has done this so okay. many times. Okay, he's also 34. Mm-hmm. It's not impossible that the, at that age, after coming off of that semifinal, that this could be a step too far for him physically. Yeah. But it wasn't. Uh, I just think we <laughs> we need to go on past performance. Early in the third set, uh, in the fourth game, mm-hmm. Novak converts on his fifth break opportunity Stephanos and goes up was... 3-1. And you know what? I think 95% of tennis fans watching were like, oh, this is over now. Novak's going to win the next three sets. Like, these things are written in the stars. And I'm not saying that to say, oh, I was right. But you just got this sense the third set went by so quickly, and it seemed like the, the writing was on the wall at that point. You've said that quite a bit, the writing right. being on the wall. It's my what? favorite Destiny's Child album, so that's why. <laughs> the The thing that was disconcerting for me watching Tsitsipas go through that stretch was his body language. He maintained a certain calm for a good stretch at the start, and then increasingly he became frustrated. You can't let Novak see that. No. Like, not even one inkling of of you being over it. Right. Not Like, not only can you not let your level dip, you can't let your, your body language dip at all. Because Novak is programmed to sense these things and pounce on them. He's experienced. Right. And he, because he's been in this situation so many times... He knows how to manage a best-of-five set match. He knows he's good enough that if he loses the first or second set, or the first and second sets, he still has a pretty good chance. He knew that he had probably seen the best that Tsitsipas had to offer him. Yes. And he knew that he hadn't given anywhere near the best he had to offer. So when you're bringing that to the table in these moments, and then you see the frustration from your opponent and you sense the dip... You just have to hold the line at that yeah. point. Once yeah. you've elevated your game and you have all these resources to draw on, you just have to hold the line. And it's it's not that Djokovic is the most accomplished men's tennis player in history, save for the Grand Slam record. It's that he can literally do anything on the tennis court. Like the the return of serve is without equal at any stage in tennis history it can't even be described in a way to accurately tell you how good it is no see like it's it's just it's it's absurd it's ridiculous if you're not a fan of Djokovic if you were a Nadal fan in that semi-final you are enraged most mm-hmm. of the match because but Nadal you, has very frequently had better stats on return no it's it's not just about the stats it's about the, the crucial moments, the tough moments, his defense, he gets balls back. That How many times did you watch this tournament, a Djokovic match, and you look at him in a position where he's in trouble, and his very next shot is skidding off the baseline? Mm. Nobody does it like he does. Okay. And that, I've that, kind of like had enough of this, though. <laughs> I'm just... I feel like we've given enough compliments. It's not hollow for me this time, because it's, it's due. Like, okay. those are things he does better than anybody else, really. Okay. Yeah, it's not a lie. Well, you're just, like, not... Anyway, Stefanos played much better than I think we could have hoped for. I think he should be really proud of this as his first slam final. Well, we went through moments of being disappointed by oh. how it turned out. Oh, of course. To then, yeah, like, but as, as always, when you take a step back and you think about it, for your first final... To get here after what you've gone through in the last 10 months in tennis. The loss at the U.S. Open. Coming back against Djokovic at the French Open. 
and then losing anyway. Like, he's had a lot of losses that could have set him back, and it hadn't. Yes. And then we find out after the match that he that his grandmother died five minutes before the final. Right. So he posted this on Instagram yesterday, and it was unclear. I don't think that his family told him. Um, he didn't know this before the match, but his grandmother passed away right before the match started. And so he had to come off court having lost this battle and then having to talk to the press and then having to find out that his grandmother died. It's just, it's a lot. It's a lot Mm. to happen in one day. And I mean, his dad had to sit there throughout the match knowing this, right? That's his mom. So man, it was a rough day for the Tsitsipas family. Going forward, um, we were already of the opinion that it was inevitable that Djokovic would finish with the most Grand Slam titles. We have never really, maybe in year one of the show, but we've never really been interested in who is the greatest men's player of all time. And it's certainly not something that's driven the show. About, mm. I mean, we, we've been accused of not paying attention to men's tennis in the past. And maybe that's why, because we are not interested in that stuff at all. Well, that would be partly why. They do the other part entirely by themselves. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I can sense that you are nearing the end of your rope with the state of your physical wellness mm. and being able to give of yourself with this episode. So just today, not like yeah. in general. Um, so we're going to try and get through this. We're going to speed it up a little bit. In the doubles, on the men's side, the long-time French pairing of Nicolas Mau and Pierre-Hugues Herbert won their fifth slam title together, second at Roland Garros. Nicolas was super emotional in the aftermath of this win. Uh, folks are speculating that this is his last year on tour. I don't know if that's true. I feel like he's been retiring for a while now. They beat Bublik and Golubev in the final. And in mixed doubles, Krawczyk and Salisbury beat Karatsev and Elena Veznina in the mixed doubles final. Elena Veznina, who just returned to pro mm-hmm. tennis. Apparently at the start of the year in around February, Karatsev approached her and like, hey, do you want to play at the French Open? And she was like, well, I haven't even started playing again yet. And uh, <laughs> my level is not that great. He was like, I- I'm sure you'll be fine by then. And they were. Mm-hmm. Because of the compressed schedule this year, there were a bunch of grass tournaments in the second week of Roland Garros. Kudos to any of you who could pay attention to both at the same time. In Nottingham, Joe Conta was back in the winner's circle for the first time since 2019. She rediscovered her serve. She was raining down aces in Nottingham. I believe that was her fourth career title. In Stuttgart, Felix Auger-Aliassime. Uh, well, let's start with the good news. He reached his eighth career ATP final. Yes, still at the age of 20 years old. The bad news is that he also lost his eighth career ATP final. And also his 16th consecutive set in an ATP mm. final. He got to a tiebreak in the first set against Marin Cilic. Cilic, we had said on previous episodes, had been rediscovering his form. We talked that maybe he would have been a tough out for Federer in the second round at Roland Garros. And now he's back in the winner's circle for the first time since 2018. Also, that was on grass at Queen's Club in 2018. Jasmine Paolini won the Croatian Bowl Ladies Open. It was the first ITF title of her career. That event, Tamara Zidanecek was the person who won the last two. Oh, she couldn't be there because she was a semifinalist at the French Open. But the last two times this event was held, she was the winner in 19... Wow, in 2018 (laughs) and 2019. It wasn't held last year because of COVID. Francis Tiafo, he wins his first grass title, the Nottingham Challenger. Christopher Eubanks, he won his second career challenger title, this one in Orlando and is on the cusp of returning to the top 200. His highest career rank is number 147. It could have been a banner day for black men in men's tennis. Mm-hmm. With And it was. It was. Just two an, of three. It wasn't a hat trick. Yes. We're going to finish the episode with a few etc. moments from the French Open. And it begins with one of the most absurd conflicts of interest in tennis that you will ever see i mean there are so many Mm. there are so many and because there's so many it's often difficult to get to the root of what the issue is 
but this one was just like how yeah. and it's been percolating for a while misha zverev alexander's brother and a former professional tennis player himself as you know has been working for eurosport as a, an analyst after alexander's match earlier this week he was asked by his co-hosts what he said to his brother during the match mm -hmm. the two of them were in studio and he's beamed in via satellite mm. and uh he was not there in capacity of coach he was at that match courtside because of his credential yes now uh, you also cannot coach during a match so it doesn't matter <laughs> <laughs> i understand yes it was important that you made that distinction yes. however even if he had been there as a coach, he's not supposed to be talking mm. to his player and coaching. And he's not totally unaware of this because he hesitated when he was asked this. Uh, yeah. And then he, he like, said a few things that he, he conveyed at the time. I mean, this was when, when Zverev was down two sets to love to Tsitsipas. I just... It's, it's so embarrassing. Well, it's absurd because it's so... Like, nobody bothers hiding it. You know, the idea that a person who works as a commentator in a professional capacity who's also the brother of an active player during this tournament is on court giving him tips which is breaking the rules of both his network contract and the rules of the sport and the chair empire can't be looking out for that because if anything he's looking out for the box right where misha is not sitting he's somewhere else because of his credential and he's able to flout those rules because of it mm -hmm. and tennis coverage is so silly it seems across the world that we all just kind of giggle about it what we have here is the making of another nepotistic tennis situation whereby an unqualified former tennis player but right would misha have this job based on the strength of his tennis playing career or does he have it because of the clout that comes with his last name and who he's able to provide access to. Right. Sharon Fitchman went off on the tournament organizers. She was like, I I know that you all are enjoying this uh, Raffole number 50, whatever it is, but I've got six pages of things to say right now. Mm -hmm. it, it literally was six tweets. <laughs> it was. One of six, two of six, three of six. <laughs> and we've heard throughout this tournament, the lead up to it and through the tournament, how unhappy doubles players were with the slashes that were made to their prize money relative to what was done to the singles pool. Yeah. Hell, in the mixed doubles, the teams who lost in the first round made zero dollars. What? In mixed doubles, yeah. Zero dollars. Oh, okay. When we're talking about, like, the real, like she said, the reallocation of 1% of singles prize money would have made that much of a difference. Yeah. To the doubles players but it's just not important and so she took it a step further to say it's not just that they don't think we're important as evidenced by the prize money it's also these other ways that they shit on us for the entire two weeks yeah because the nature of the u.s coverage i don't know if it was like this in other countries but here there, the commentators were frequently saying how many improvements the french federation had made to the rolling Garros site over the past few years and how it was at one point considered hopelessly old-fashioned and behind the times as far as the facilities and now it's been much improved but the leadership of the french federation is still uh i don't even know how to say it uh, they come off looking amateurish in public but with the doubles prize money thing i know that a lot of fans uh kind of get down on doubles players for complaining about these things but if you're going to hold these draws, fans like, and you have to pay them. Fans and Dan Evans, <laughs> like you just have to pay them. Otherwise, why why are you even having doubles if you don't value the product? Taylor Townsend recently wrote uh, a narrative for the Players Tribune about her experience as a young junior player coming up, and with a, a big theme being the fact that she is in her words fat and black and what is what that was like going through the usta system becoming a pro and realizing it at many turns that it is very difficult to be a person like her we know what happened to taylor townsend as a junior 
It's one of the truly wretched stories from tennis's underbelly. Yeah, it, it was a, a big stain on U.S. tennis for a long time. It eventually resulted in Patrick McEnroe moving on from the USTA. Not necessarily tied to that incident. It may not have been tied. It was a couple years later, but <laughs> yeah. finally some acknowledgement of his colossal failure mm. in that post. And He was uh, the head of player development at that time. Uh-huh. We finally have now some first-person narrative from Taylor about the full extent of what it was like for her to go through that situation. Yeah. Because we've heard a lot of... I mean, when it happened, we saw a lot of narratives from other people's perspectives and and sort of just the news roundup. But what really occurred is that she was the best junior player in the world, coming off a junior Grand Slam singles title, a few slam doubles titles in juniors. Ranked number one. Ranked number one. And going into the U.S. Open, the USDA put her on this huge training block and said, we are not going to pay for you to go to the U.S. Open if you don't do this, that, and the other. During the middle of this training block, she was diagnosed with anemia, and she thought that was a blessing, because she could finally put a name to what she had been feeling, and that, oh, okay, well, the USDA, they can't prevent me from going to the U.S. Open now, because now I realize I had a medical problem. But no, they still refused to support her career because they felt she was overweight, out of shape, and didn't look what a tennis player was supposed to look like. And wrapped into that is lazy, not trying hard enough, not doing the work, having a bad work ethic. So her team scrounged up the funds for her to go to the U.S. Open that year by herself without the support from the USTA. I believe she made the quarterfinals in singles and won the doubles title in New York that summer. Now, a lot of the commentators in the US have close ties to the USTA, obviously. Mm-hmm. A lot of them came through the system or have worked for the organization or have many great friends in the organization. So at the time, I feel like there was a, a real lack of powerful people in US tennis speaking out about this. A lot of them worked with Patrick McEnroe at ESPN. So Mm -hmm. I understand that as awkward, but this is a young woman who could be the face of the next generation of U.S. tennis. And what did we do to her? Also, a lot of these people have their own academies or work closely with youth players who are instrumental in passing on knowledge or making decisions that affect the development of the next generation of American tennis players. And time and again, we see one set of blanket rules trying to be used for everybody. Mm. You know, we talked about on the last episode how just because, the last couple episodes with respect to Naomi, just because something has been done one way for eternity doesn't mean that it has to continue to be done the same way moving forward. It was good to see that Chris Everett and Pam Shriver both acknowledged Taylor's writing publicly and said essentially that this is something that we can't allow to happen again and that we need to do better next time. It's important to see that. Um, I just wish that we had done better. Mm. You know, I don't want Taylor Townsend to be the example of someone we failed so we can not do it again. No, but we continue to fail her. Right. Because people continued to question her judgment, question the way she went about her career, why isn't she going to Europe in the spring? Mm-hmm. Why, why is she, she playing challengers? Why is she staying stateside during the spring playing these challengers that she's too good for? Is she not trying to better herself? Why doesn't she have any ambition to be better? We lived through that. Oh, after yeah. Very recently. 2012. Very, yeah. very recently, we lived through that. And it turned out she got to be like top, top 70, top 60 in the world, doing things her own way, beat Simona Halep at the 2019 US Open, had a big breakthrough. She has had to, out of necessity, chart her own course, do things her own way. That's best for her because she did not have people who should have been looking out for her do right by her Mm. in her career. And let's not talk about some of her male compatriots getting 40, 50, 70, 70 70 wild Wild cards cards into tennis tournaments. 
she has gotten wild cards, but not even close to what some of these guys have gotten. This is the nepotism in tennis, right? Mm-hmm. The Zverev brothers, the McEnroe brothers. I mean, I presume Patrick McEnroe had a college degree, but like to warrant his rise in the game to this degree. I've yet to see him or hear him speak on his role in what happened to Taylor Townsend in any sort of accountable way. I will say this. If you have your own podcast, you have every opportunity to do so. I'd like to see it. I would listen to it. I would (laughs) definitely tune in. Yeah. Uh, Bianca Andreescu, during Roland Garros, issued this very um, morbid-looking notes app thing. Maybe it was a notes app, but it was a, I have something to share with you all. She has split with her coach, Sylvain Bruno. They've been together for a long time. It very much looked like, oh, I'm pulling out of Wimbledon or I'm retiring. or so. It was rather dramatic, but uh, they have... Which is her what? Yeah. <laughs> they have amicably parted ways. And Jennifer Brady has also parted ways with her German coach. Mm-hmm. We know that he was in, at least in some way, seriously responsible for her rise in tennis. Like, she went and spent an entire block of off-season training in Germany a couple of years ago when they first got together, and, and the results came. Mm-hmm. And so this is a, a little bit surprising, right? Yeah. They, they made the finals of the Australian Open together. She's currently injured. But, you know, like, these things are, are par for the course in tennis these days. Mm-hmm. Coaching-player relationships just do not last as long as they used to. I think. Yeah, we could be wrong on that. <laughs> And many of them seem to end in a pretty friendly way, mm-hmm. or at least that's how they present it publicly. Man, did you think that this is a this is a bit of a a reach back, a t- reach around, no, a throwback? That's definitely not what it is. Casting back to the earlier epi- earlier part of the episode. Okay, yeah, let's. We're going back in time on. a few uh-huh. minutes. A lot of folks were talking about well, damn. Who would have thought that Barbara Krejcikova would have been the Czech player to win a slam ahead of Karolina Pliskova? And I kind of chuckled because we've said this with respect to any number of other women who've won slams in the last couple of years. I think you mentioned this was the, the sixth different woman in a row who's won a slam. Who's won their first major at the French Open, okay. starting with Muguruza in 2016. Well, thank you for your precision. I clearly was not paying attention to you when you said it. But with that, um, Sloane Stevens, Sonia Kennan, Bianca Andreescu, Naomi Osaka, Ash Barty. Mm-hmm. All these women have come when Pliskova was supposed to have arrived. And we've said on the podcast before, like, man, that must suck. But then, given what happened to her in Rome and her response to it, we also can accept that she just don't give a damn. <laughs> And that's a perfectly valid response to it, too. Like, you just got to live your life. Well, maybe it's water off a duck's back for her. Maybe she doesn't look at it like, oh, great, another Czech player is winning before me. Or another player, mm. period. I don't, if it were me, I would not be happy for the girl at all. <laughs> well, we know you stay petty <laughs> and pressed all the time. And we also know you're not about any kind of forced enthusiasm you just told us. No. <laughs> but the show must go on. You have here on the agenda last, the Rafa statue. Thoughts? Mm -hmm. What are your thoughts? I see Terminator. Uh, It's fine. I don't, I mean, I'm really not an art critic, so it's fine. It's nice. Um, They picked a good silhouette, a great mm -hmm. photo to, to make this statue based off of. My thoughts are, if someone made a statue of me, I would check my pulse to see if I was still alive. Because it feels like very much memorial. Mm. It feels like something you do for someone when they're dead. Right. But his achievements on clay are so of another realm that this is just happening. Yeah. Yeah. Like 13 times winning Roland Garros. I believe what Barcelona as well. Where is it that he has um, the court named after him? That's Barcelona, right? Yeah. Pista pe- Rafa Nadal. Yeah, and, and people are like, well, this is just way too soon. It's, it's, a, it's a little bit weird. I don't know if, like, metal is, like, my aesthetic. (laughs) It's very, as I said, Mm Terminator-ish. The one thing I don't like about it, for sure, like, I don't have strong feelings about it, is that it it conjures warrior, it conjures 
brute strength. It conjures all the things that have been by default ascribed to Nadal in opposition to Federer throughout his career. Mm. It doesn't give me beauty. Like Nadal on clay is a thing of beauty. You'd like to see an action shot of him hitting a volley? No, you're being obtuse. (laughs) I'm saying (laughs) something a little bit more soft. Like, everything about it is hard. Okay, but what people think about when they think of Rafa at Roland Garros is him winding up for a huge topspin forehand where the follow-through doesn't go across his body but behind his head. You know, that kind of thing. I have nothing wrong mm. with the silhouette. I told you that I love... They, they chose that perfectly. But make it softer and cuter. That's all. Oh, like with a different medium, perhaps? Perhaps. Something that conjures the beauty of it. Because people see that and they think, wow, what what great brute force. Whereas I look at them like, damn, that's beautiful. Mm. You know? And because he's the, the, the Federer opponent in that storied rivalry, he has to, quote unquote, necessarily occupy that space, that mm. aesthetic space. On that note, French Open is done. We'll be back in about 10 days for Wimbledon preview. Who knows what tennis will look like in those 10 days. Thank you for listening. I'm James. I'm at Elliot JMR on Twitter. Two L's, two T's. My name is Jonathan. I am at tennis underscore John. This is also the the most episodes we've produced at a, at a slam before. We did four. It's normally oh, just yeah. three. We did an extra one. Anyway, if you've enjoyed the show... Give us a review on iTunes, whichever platform you listen to the show on. That stuff helps boost traffic to the show, helps build our profile. Thanks for listening. Till next time.